Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Patricia, I want to take a step back and introduce you really briefly. You're one of the foremost experts on the history of science, especially of the Enlightenment and in Europe, and you teach at Cambridge. And you wrote almost a dozen books, um, including Science, a 4,000-year history, and um, your latest book is called Isaac Newton's um, World Career at the Mint, uh, about his later years. And I wanted to ask you about what... When you studied, especially this, this really long history of 4,000 years, that's a ton of, of knowledge you have to absorb, I assume, and tons of facts you have to look into. When you, when you remember back when you wrote this book a couple of years ago, what was kind of the most surprising thing you felt was, well, I really did not expect it. I didn't know that this has happened during the 4,000 years. What is kind of this pattern that emerged for you, but you never thought that's actually going to happen before you wrote this book? Um, I th well, I think the most important thing for me when I was writing the book was to um, was to determine the structure, because otherwise I thought back and there were all sorts of things happening all over the place and all over the world, and I felt I needed to impose some sort of pattern on it. And I, what I did not want to do was to tell a straightforward story of progress leading to the present, because I think scientific development is a branching, random process, and I also wanted not to make it not just a story about the supremacy of European thought, I wanted to also to write about other cultures and the knowledge that they've acquired. So when I decided to structure it as seven sections of seven chapters each, it surprised me that having invented that completely artificial, in a way, arbitrary structure, it enabled me to link things together in different ways. So, for example, one of the sections, um, it focuses on small things. So I would put genes and atoms bracketed together, which is not what usually happens. Usually one of them is in biology and then atoms are in particle physics. So having that structure made me think about the history of science in a very different way, because of course, there's no right or wrong way to tell a story about the past. E even my starting point 4,000 
thousands of years ago, that was arbitrary. I, I chose the Babylonians because their choice of 60 as the base unit still affects us because of uh, the seconds in a minute, the minutes in an hour, and 360 degrees on, in a circle. So that was where I decided to start. But of course, I could have started earlier with several thousand years earlier with Stonehenge, for example. Did you feel there is some, well, some, some, some super conscious direction of science? So I know you thought about how science is, is based on economics, but it also is very strongly interrelated with religion. And there's, there, we have these constant wars that seems to be influenced by science for the better or worse. Do you think there is some like cosmic direction for science? and for technology well, or it is so I, completely random and has this up and down cycles i don't think there's any direction at all and i don't really think there is such a single thing as science if you look at what drives people what drives people is uh the search for money the search for domination the search for land if, if you happen to be a government and scientific knowledge is usually a byproduct of that. There's this great ideological model that you, ha you have a scientist who's somehow above worldly concerns. He's he, because it usually is a he, has got this abstract mind that's sort of somehow floating around and it's very different from everybody else's. It seems to me that's just a secular equivalent of a saint. A saint is a very special person who's divorced from the rest of humanity, is above the rest of humanity. And it seems to me that scientists have taken over that social role of of saints and we regard them as being different but in fact scientists are just as much immersed in the interests of the world in commercial interests in uh, interest for their own promotion they're just as much concerned with those as anybody else is so the drive to explore the world for example to go to america well wasn't so much well i wonder what america looks like it was much more well perhaps there's going to be all sorts of uh, rare metals and woods and plants uh, and other products that we can bring back from America that will benefit us. So that was why people went there and started exploring it, but not because they had some abstract notion that they'd like to know more about it. Well, there, is, there seems to be this human desire for human recognition, right? And in order to be widely recognized, you want to possess something in knowledge or relationship that other people are interested in, right, that they crave. Mm. And we notice from, from priests there, we notice about the monasteries, right? They got really popular in the Middle Ages because priests and the monks there, they were close to God and everyone was seeking that closeness, either because of redemption or uh, have an, a way to repent sins. Mm. So they, they, they used that leverage over time to, to obviously enrich themselves um, because it was a, was a tradable value um, that, that they that they found in society. And I feel when we, when we look at how modern physicists, for instance, um, appear in modern media, they're kind of like priests, as you say, right? They, they, they are close to God. They're close to, the, to, to knowing how the world is really made of. And they kind of use this as leverage in society, I feel, obviously to get human recognition, but also to make money and, and enjoy the benefits of it. I think this is great, right? So this is what entrepreneurs do too. It's kind of a reality distortion field. But in order to keep this alive, you constantly have to come up with something new, right? Something that is relevant and other people actually also want. I, th I think uh, one, one argument about the church is that the church, the medieval churches were the very foundation of capitalism. If you think of 
blocks and time. We, uh, we measure out time constantly. We're paid for the amount of work that we do. If you go back to before the first clocks were invented, the only people who really need to, needed to divide the day into specific periods were monks because they had to have their religious services at regular hours. For everybody else living by the seasons, this sounds really weird, but an hour was not of a specific length. There were 24 hours in a day, but it was divided so that there were 12 hours in the night time and 12 hours when it was daylight, which meant that in, in the summer, you had far more hours of daylight than you did in the winter, which meant that the hours were much longer. And so hours were different in length, depending on whether it was the winter or the summer. So this concept of equal segments of time was really introduced by the churches when they introduced clocks on their, on their uh, bell towers to tell the monks the time of the services. But those very same clocks also started regulating the society and they lie at the very basis of economics because the whole point of well the whole basis of modern capitalism and investment depends on time so i think that's an excellent example of how modern capitalism emerged from something uh, a religious process which we think as of as being completely separate from it yeah i think they're deeply interrelated and i was talking to paul friedman a couple of episodes ago and he he, he I listened to, to most of his lectures at Yale. What, what I learned about the Middle Ages, it used to be, and it's a long stretch of time that basically goes from the end of the Roman Empire, the early Roman Empire, say the fourth century, um, and still so wide, um, further in the East. And then it stretches all the way to the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment that, that comes after. It, it kind of seems there isn't much happening in scientific knowledge can generation there is a lot happening in human society and it seems to be this this whole jewish heritage is actually being digested over many generations um throughout europe and it's being reformed and it's being changed and eventually it leads to the reformation but why do you think it took so long before this 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 cambrian um evolution or revolution came around with all these scientific discoveries seemingly all fall into a period about a thousand years after the end of the initial Roman Empire. Why did it take so long? But was, is there something that we overlook if we want to reproduce this that, 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 we, that was put in place shortly before the Enlightenment and that triggered it? Uh, personally, I don't think there was such a thing as a scientific revolution. I think process is very, progress is very slow. If you want to call it progress, change is, is very slow. There was an awful lot happening in the, um, in the period that tends to be called the Dark Ages. And the reason that it was called the Dark Ages was the people who came afterwards wanted to relegate that uh, to pretend that nothing had happened because that makes themselves look better. I mean, it's the, the same way that the concept of an industrial revolution wasn't invented until the Victorian age because that made the Victorians look as though they'd achieved something. And the whole concept of a scientific revolution is a very 20th century introduction. It became important in England after the Second World War uh, when a man called Butterfield, who was a historian at Cambridge, uh, want, wanted to uh, unify the world through science uh, rather than religion because he wanted to see the end end of war. So the scientific revolution wasn't something that people felt that they were living through. It's, it's a way of dividing history up into convenient chunks. 
that historians have adopted retrospectively. And it's an indication of the rising importance in our society that science has come to hold, that that's how we choose to categorize the past. Uh, we could have categorized it by uh, great periods of literature, we could have categorized it by great monarchs or by the age of discovery. But what, what we choose to classify the past by is in terms of scientific development and scientific change, as though it were all leading up to the present, which is absolutely, in my opinion, absolutely not right. Science, science and society could have taken all sorts of different directions. Indeed, if you look around the world, we can see that different societies have different values and operate in different ways. And um, it would be very presumptuous of me to think that the UK or America or Anglo-America, Anglo whatever you want to call it, the West, is better than everyone else. I mean, it's, it may be different, but that doesn't make it superior. Yeah, I've been pondering that question. We seem to be almost like a cult that spawned, I don't know, maybe a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago at some point. And I think it's, it's triggered by some Old Testament thinking, but that's all just uh, hypothetical. We, 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 we became of it this cult of technology, this cult of science, and we kind of split up from the rest of humanity. Because even mm. now you can go to lots of places in the world where people live as hunter and gatherers, like in the Stone Age or Bronze Age. And they seemingly are happy, maybe more happy than we are, if you ask them. So we, we, most of us, we don't want to go back 200 years. I don't think a very small part of the population would go back to the 18th century. We, we will romanticize it, but we don't actually want to live in that society. There's more diseases and comfort seems to be low. But lots of people who live in primitive societies today, so they're very happy. They don't want to necessarily trade places with us. Um, they kind of want to be left alone. So the question that I always thought about is what, what, what happened to us to be elevated science to become, and they now call it, you know, this is very science fiction-y, but people say we are kind of this, this, this bootloader, this vetware for, for building intelligent machines that will take over in a couple hundred years and then they will mm. leave Earth and that's all science fiction. But do you see there was a specific event that triggered this, this cult of technology or cult of science? No, I don't see a specific ev event. It's a cumulative event. But I think we're in the situation now where science um, has managed over the last couple of hundred years to put itself in into such a powerful position that a lot of people assume that science is a supreme form of knowledge. And collectively, uh, governments are pouring huge amounts of money into science. So at the, at the, at the moment, there's all the different countries are, are going out to Mars and out to other planets and seeing what they can find there. Uh, in my opinion, it would be much better to stop doing that and to spend all the fortunes that are being spent on that scientific research uh, into making people's lives better on Earth. There's an enormous number of poor people, not just in our own continents, but in Africa and Asia. And personally, I think the money would be uh, far better spent on them. And if there's one thing that the COVID pandemic has taught us is that increasing technology is not necessarily a very good idea. Yeah, definitely makes us more vulnerable. That seems one of the, the really nasty side effects. You know, we, we think of someone, there's a TV show called Alone, and they put people outside on Vancouver Island and they have to survive on their own. And even the most successful participants make it for, say, three, four, five months. And that's it. Then they would literally die of starvation. And they're expert, experts at it. They're the best you can find in the whole US or Canada. And it, it, it seems to be that was the default. That was the, the, 
the normal way of life not that long ago. And we would have to survive, you know, 50, 60 years like this. So it kind of seems, it, it, it seems for us unimaginable that this would be a position we ever want to be put in, but that was the default position. And most people had a life, right? Obviously less than around 9 billion people or much smaller numbers. I find that quite, quite stunning. One thing that we really wanted to ask you now I have the opportunity, we, we, we see a lot of knowledge that came from the old Greeks and then was adopted by um, the Romans. And they seem to be ready to make big scientific discoveries for some reason. They and they did, but they never really put it's like an industrial revolution or pre-industrial revolution in place, right? They didn't build big machinery besides the war machinery, they built aqueducts, but they didn't generate something. I don't know, they didn't build the steam engine, they didn't build cars. Is this something in your research that you found that was holding them back? Um, I, I, but the whole notion of holding them back suggests there's one single route towards the future and that you just progress along that route in different ways. Whereas I, I think um, scientific discoveries are made because of particular circumstances and the whole process of change is very, very slow and very cumulative. So for example, if you take Isaac Newton, we celebrate him for discovering um, or inventing the, law, the laws of gravity and un unifying the cosmos. But he didn't do that single-handedly. For the previous 200 years, there'd been other um, people working on that problem. So Copernicus is the most famous, but then there was someone, Kepler, for example, and Galileo were, were in, absolutely crucial to Newton's ideas. But before that, there were people in the medieval universities who were working on uh, new mathematical systems. And you can, whenever you write about someone, you can always, it seems to me, you can always trace a predecessor. So now a lot of people are saying that there were Arabic precursors to Copernicus who put the sun rather than the earth at the center of the universe and that Copernicus might well have known about uh, their, their theories. So I, I'm very much opposed to this concept of one single genius who comes along and revolutionizes everything all on his own, because there's always antecedents and there are always, also always successors. So again, using the example of Isaac Newton, it took about 100 years before the whole of Europe really accepted all of his ideas. And along the way, they those ideas change substantially. So the version of Newtonianism that we have now is very, very different from the one that he held himself. We believe in a deterministic universe so that in principle, if you know at the moment where everything is and how fast it's moving, you can in principle work out exactly how it's going to be moving in 10,000 years from now. It would be too difficult practically, but in principle you can because we live in a deterministic universe. Isaac Newton did not suggest a deterministic universe. He suggested a universe that was somehow God. God permeated the universe and God could intervene in the operations of the universe. God could send in uh, animistic matter in the tales of comets, God, Newton's God, could affect how the universe operates. So it's a fundamental, crucial philosophical difference between the universe that Newton envisaged and the theory that we now call Newtonianism. They're very different. I find this really interesting that we see, almost until the early 20th century, 
most of the names that we remember, that doesn't mean that they are actually the ones who did all the work, right? But they definitely contributed. And they seem to be really strong believers. Typically, it's New Testament or Old Testament um, beliefs. So typically, it's Catholics, it's Protestants. And I was just reading Hobbes, and half of his book is how the state should look like. It's a political book, right? It's a certain kind of the secular part. But the second part is of the Leviathan is how do I prove, literally scientific proof for, for elements and, and quotes of the New Testament. And I was really blown away by this. So it wasn't something where he had like a scientific distance. He, he examined it, but he, he already knew it was 100% true. So he didn't question it, which was, which was amazing to me because he was political scientist, right? So he, 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 he wasn't entrenched in technology, but he was definitely entrenched in building the modern state. And that seems to end in the early 20th century. Since then, we have a deeply secular um, part of the, the intelligentsia. Most, most people in modern universities, they wouldn't put the word God anywhere in, in their white papers or books. Do you think this is a generally good thing or you're missing out on something? Because it seems for a long, long time, this seems to was like the staple of, of science and research to be very close to God and figure out how God actually works. I think the reason um, that science and religion separated in the early 20th century was uh, because there was a, a tussle for social power between uh, Victorian scientists and Victorian clerics. And it was in both their interests to separate from each other in order that they could each claim authority in a separate sphere. So I think part of the answer of the separation of science and religion is as a consequence of this social struggle uh, for power. I think, in my opinion, scientists have still not answered the fundamental questions that religion is asking. Uh, where did the universe come from? I mean, it's all very well to say that there was a big bang, I don't know how many million years ago, but that still doesn't fundamentally answer the question of what happened before the big bang or how did, uh, how, how did everything come to be? What's the difference between me now talking to you and me in some years' time when I'm dead. You can, you can explain it by saying that my spirit has left my body, uh, which scientists wouldn't accept as an explanation. But on the other hand, scientists don't have any viable explanation either. So in that sense, I'd, you could say that science has achieved very little in terms of real, true knowledge. I have, sometimes I have the same suspicion. And, you know, that is also true for most morals. So science doesn't tell us much about morals. I think we are getting a couple more answers, but they're definitely not widespread knowledge in, in society yet. Maybe we'll get there over the next 100 years or 200 years. So when you read Plato or Socrates, um, or we, we ponder with the same questions, and we don't have any better answers. We kind of have similar answers. But even Aristotle, most people today, if you ask them the same question, they would probably have worse answers than he had, and that's 2,500 years ago. Well... It's very easy to um, excuse scientists from having morals. So if you think, for example, of the of the bombs uh, that the Americans dropped on Hiroshima, a lot of scientists felt very guilty about it. But a lot of scientists uh, basically took, took the line, well, it was a government decision to drop the bombs and it was a government decision to tell me to work on the bomb. And so they could yeah. absolve themselves of any responsibility of being complicit in, in, in this process. Uh, but I, I think it's wrong to, for, for scientists to 
do that. You haven't got two separate worlds, a scientific world and a moral world. Independent individual people have to make their own decisions about what they're going to work on. And there's a lot of scientists who, uh, before the war and after war, refused to work on something like an atomic bomb. So uh, I don't think science itself can have a an ethical code because I don't think there is such a thing as science. Science is what scientists do and scientists are people and there's a lot of them and collectively they make decisions. There seems to be and a lot of people have different ideas and theories about it. When, and when we talk about morals and the, the, the history of science I think one topic that we, we always need to talk about is slavery, right? So slavery was deeply immoral and I think even in the Roman Empire and before, um, it was it was the standard models models of operation in, in many countries. But I think even then, if you read old texts, there was something of a bad conscience was already building. The old Greeks already had a bit of a bad conscience about slavery, and it's it seems to be strange that. And a lot of people say, well, the the Roman Empire never really came up with any technological. Um, you know, labor-saving technology because they had access to this vast amount of, of slaves from, from wherever they wanted to, to to hunt new slaves for the empire. I'm not sure if I buy this, but it seems like the only abandoned slavery really widespread and with, with a strong overtone at a time when the Industrial Revolution ran around and we had labor-saving technology with the steam engine plenty and it was relatively cheap. So I'm, I'm, my question is, does, does morality and the idea you know, being a better person, does it follow a certain economics or is it the other way around? Could we have abandoned slavery or should have been abandoned slavery? I think we all agree we should. But do you think, given the incentives at the time, it could have happened widespread 2000 years ago? What would have been necessary to, to, to make that happen? Well, the basic argument in England during the 18th century, which is when the abolition movement started, the basic argument was that the whole British economy depended on the slave trade and therefore it would be impossible uh, to get rid of it. I mean, that was why abolition took so many years to come. Uh, I think there were, there were people then who protested and they pointed out what is still true now, that every individual has to make their own decisions. So, for example, I some people now refuse to buy books from Amazon or they refuse to buy clothes from certain shops or they refuse to buy coffee from certain American coffee stores. And each, each person has to sort of reach a moral decision about what they are going to do and what they aren't going to do. But I think whatever sort of life we live, we can always feel that we're privileged, or certainly in England and America, whatever our lives are, we're privileged compared with other people, but we're not necessarily going to make the decision to sacrifice our own lives in order to help others. And I think the same people in the 18th century or earlier in the Roman society, when they thought about slavery, were involved in making those similar sort of decisions for them they were not prepared to give up their wealth and their comfort just to uh, save some enslaved people who were con very conveniently 2,000 miles across the Atlantic, whereas other people were prepared to take that moral decision, which is why it ended. I think one of the other interesting things about the, uh, the start of the abolition movement at the end of the 18th century was 
one of the decisions that was made was to um, to boycott sugar. And the British government made a huge profit by taxing sugar imports, and we were the biggest sugar importer in Europe. And by joining the, move, the movement to boycott sugar, it enabled women and people, the very many men who didn't have the vote, to exert political influence because they were the ones that supported the sugar boycott. So I think that's quite an interesting aspect of it. That, that was, in a way, it was a sort of start of a sort of true 100% universal democracy. It was for the first time women and poorer men could make their opinion felt, and they make it felt, made it felt where it hurt in government revenues. Yeah. I I just feel it follows a certain economic reality, as you say, you know, it was for the longest time, it was considered unaffordable to get rid of slaves. And then suddenly it was not such a big deal anymore, right? Strange how this happens. And maybe it's a bit like we, we slaughter all these animals, right? And we, we feel like without animals, we don't have anything to eat. We could eat other stuff, but we feel like that wouldn't be a life we aspire to. If someone comes up with cheap food that is the same, but we don't have to extract it from life or uh, animals who were, who were alive, alive at some point, but then we just change our mind becomes it's it's not it's not too it doesn't really distract us from our from our life that we are used to, right? So there mm. seems to be there seems to be as you say there is a cost of morality, and sometimes it's a positive cost. So so you 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 really pay for your higher morals, and that's often you, you put yourself in a shaky situation. I feel because if the cost is too high, then you just become globally very uncompetitive. Or it's a negative cost. So certain beliefs that I feel, and so that's where I feel religion comes in, it kind of makes it makes it cheaper to live. It makes it more productive to live, so to speak. Cheaper is maybe the wrong word. And it, before we go there, I think it's, we, we adopt a certain, and this, we have all this variety of beliefs, but we don't really know how these things will play out because it's a complex human society, right? So we probably only need a certain small amount of people who, who very vocal like what we see right now political movements they're very vocal and it's only maybe five to ten percent of the population but that might be enough to steer the population in a completely different direction i think it's also very tempting to uh, assume the moral high ground and to think we're far more ethical than societies were in the past so when slavery was rampant in the 16th 17th 18th century uh, quite a lot of people didn't actually see a moral problem with it because many of them thought that um, that black Africans, that was what the debate was about, was that black Africans were far closer to animals than white Europeans. And so they felt that they, they, they had the right to own them, just like people nowadays think that they have the right to own either a dog or, or a horse or a cow uh, to do work for them. And by the time it got to the First World War, Slavery, in a way, was still widely practiced in England. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of servants who were effectively in captivity, working for very, very low wages. And the First World War was one of the uh, ways in which women particularly were liberated from that sort of servitude. And there are all sorts of absolutely terrible, awful things happening now. So I, I do think we're very wrong to assume that we, we know what the moral high road is. I, th I think that we need far more ethical debate. Um, I think rather like science, I don't think there is a progress from a low ethical standard to a high ethical standard. We just see things differently from how people did in the past. So I th in both England and America, 
the uh, societies for the protection of animals were set up about 100 years before the Society for the Protection of Children. And that's because the idea was that you had a responsibility to look after animals. So the question, the moral questions that people were asking themselves were different from the ones that we're asking now. And I don't think we're necessarily any better. Yeah. Which, uh, let the, me... Yeah. There, I mean, are there, I mean, there's... There's quite frequently scandals. I mean, we this society still does practice slavery, and there's also the people who are working under appalling conditions for very, very low wages. I mean, that is still happening. So we have we haven't completely eradicated enslavement in the world, even even in England and America. Yeah, when I when I recall Jung, and he he went out to a lot of primitive societies. He studied them. And some of the some of the habits they strike us as just pure horror. Right? Sorry, but, sorry. Can I just say something? You, I, yeah. I don't think you should talk about primitive societies because that assumes okay. uh, that's a derogatory term that assumes that we are Society more advanced. Society that he called primitive. Let's put it. Oh, way. he called primitive. That's, that's not my. That's opinion. fine. That's fine. That's, sorry. That's that's his opinion, and uh, you know, it was the the early twentieth century, late nineteenth century. What I found that when you analyze societies that he studied, they don't they don't seem to be less happy. They seem to be, and they they have a moral code, right? That's different from ours. And we would we would see still look look at certain habits and certain customs as kind of horrific, but to them and the the way their society works and maybe the way it reduces violence for them is something that's quite surprising when you when you look at some of those so i i fully agree with you the the this this progress that we are on it seems it's it's not clear that the only thing that kind of helps me to 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 often feel we are onto something and it's not just random is it's rare that you want to send people from an advanced society, so to speak, right, or from a, from the society that follows a Western model. When you ask most people, would you go back to another society that we consider less advanced, right? Again, that's a judgment. Or would you go back to the 15th century in a different time frame, or even to the 1950s? Most people would say, no, no. And even if you say that 10 years ago, would you go back to society with all the, the negatives you had 10 years ago? Most people would, would romanticize about it for a while, but they wouldn't go for it. They would actually say, no, no, right now it's the best society as voted by most people out there and myself that we ever had in our lifetimes. Yeah, but if you, I mean, you, you, asked, you asked me if I would go back to other situations. Um, I mean, there's a, I'm, I'm not hugely familiar with it. There's a big literature, uh, uh, Akebi is a, is a very good example of uh, people, uh, African writers, who write about the adverse effects that the European missionaries had on their own societies and how, the, how their, their own African moral codes deteriorated uh, beneath the invasion of Europeans. So I, th I think it, it's, it's important to ask other people what they think as well. And so for example, another example is, oh, I think it's, very, I think it's yeah. very easy for us 
uh, we we romanticize the past and we romanticize other societies. So so when when you see when you hear about technophobes bemoaning all the electricity and the cars and the digitization, what they're actually doing is writing writing all these complaints on a laptop sitting in a nice centrally heated room. Yeah. And then another it's thing that people problem, tend right? <laughs> people te tend to romanticize other societies and. They go abroad and which I have great problems about doing this, about going abroad and looking at other societies and sort of gawping at them as though they were in sort of some sort of human zoo. But the people in those societies, if you offer them, I don't know, mobile telephones or uh, drip dry shirts, they seize them with great alacrity. They don't want to be preserved in that in that state that they are now so i think we've got to be very careful about making sure we collect everybody's opinions and not not just pronounce from uh, our I alleged agree. position of superiority I, I yeah western ideology is an invasive species yeah. <laughs> there is there's a lot of places i went to 100 different countries 130 different countries and I, that's kind of my first question how 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 do we compare and what's what's this unique gift that that particular culture or place has and every single place has one sometimes it takes a while to find it so it's not always an easy discovery and obviously it comes from my own mindset right so what's unique for me is not the same not the same for for another person or someone who who, who lives there but and i think goes to your theory i feel what we've lost out in a lot of technological progress over the years we've lost out in happiness the amount of anxiety we have to live with the amount of of, of negative emotions that is in everyone's brain especially now with covid it's it's a big price that we pay for all this technological process progress over the over the centuries and that's if you if you go outside western culture it the picture is different often you see a lot of poor countries they're very joyful they are actually the ones with my anecdotal evidence where you see the most joy, even if there's danger, if there's a lot of violence, the, the joy in people's eyes that you can feel in that moment, and you know, it's it repeats over the days, not just a single moment, is, is astonishing compared to this, you know, I mean, here in San Francisco, everyone looks to the ground, nobody looks into people's eyes, nobody talks to anyone, everyone has masks and visors on, and you're like, whoa, this is, this is a special situation now, but that was something building for a longer time that made people so depressed. But I mean, again, you're sort of seeing it uh, from the outside. I mean, you're you're sort of romanticizing other societies. You're saying that there's a certain sort of sure. joyfulness. I mean, you know, I can switch on the television and I, I look at um, a famine in Ethiopia, and there's no joy in those people's eyes. And if if other societies are so joyful, why is it that thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees are, are willing to risk death? in order to come to Western Europe and to America. So I, I think this romanticization. I would do badly in a debate with you. I'm glad we are not in a debate. So <laughs> <laughs> what, one thing I wanted to, to, to ask you about, and that's more back to the, the, the scientific progress we've seen over such a long time. We, we used to have this age of the polymath, and that seemed to be strongly something we've seen in the 17th, 18th century, at least the people that we can remember. Do you think it will ever come back? We will go to, um, you know, a lot of people say this about, you know, Matt, Matt Musk, because he has all these companies, very different parts of te technological development. Do you think we will see more of this in the near future? 
Um, well, the move into scientific disciplines didn't really start until the 19th century. So I think when you go back to the 17th, 18th century or earlier, I mean, everybody was, by our standards, everyone was a polymath because the whole map of knowledge was divided up completely differently. So there wasn't really science in the sense that we mean science. What they called science was a formalized knowledge that you put in books so you could have the science of history or the science of language for example uh, and so the, the whole way that everything was thought about was completely different and there were also some very very narrow specialists if you think of uh, Middlemarch and Casabon going back into his history of the past uh, he, he only he just had a very very narrow tunnel vision and I think the same is true now and there's still people on television radio broadcasters who have a sort of smattering uh, have a good it's either a smattering of lots and lots and lots of different disciplines but they also have the skill of being able to bring it all together and then there's other people who specialize in some very very narrow uh, topic whether it's uh, medieval coins or whether it's cell structures they, they bore down and do things more deeply so I don't think that's really changed what has changed is just the way we divide up knowledge into different sections but it seems these polymath is really sped up technological or, or, or scientific progress for a little bit they made discoveries that that we attribute to them. I don't, that's probably lower layers of, of technology and science they, they relied on. But when, when we look back to 17th, 18th century, they, they seem to be all polymaths. And now there's like rarely someone that we see that has the same stature in science, so to speak. Um, and it's really difficult even for mathematicians to break into physics and vice versa. Often from, from my point of view, they're extremely related. Uh, it is. Um, the knowledge becomes very specialized. On the other hand, it's quite interesting that some people who make great breakthroughs come from a completely different discipline. So one very good example is Alfred Wegener, who was is now celebrated as the person who invented the theory of continental drift. And he suggested that in about 1910, something like that. Um, and the reason that he could do that was because he was a meteorologist and he wasn't too stuck in his own discipline. He could sort of see everything from the outside. And I think that happens quite often. And another thing that's happening now is that the disciplines that we all recognized in the past are all coming together. They're all being reformed. So there's specialities of medical physics and there's a new um, speciality of reproductive sciences that brings together anthropologists and uh, biologists and all sorts of different disciplines. So, so all the separate disciplines, they're constantly merging and redefining themselves. Do you think, and maybe by doing this and having slightly different approaches to science, is there a way to speed up and control, so to speak, the technological progress? Or is that something that happens with or without us? We really have no control over that. Well, the government has is con constantly trying to uh, exert control. And uh, now scientists spend an awful lot of their time uh, filling out application forms for research funding. And there's this strange situation that 
in order to get funding for a particular research topic, you more or less have to know what you're going to have to find in advance. I mean, no, nobody is going to get funding for a project that says, well, I just want to go out and see what happens and it might fail and it might work. Uh, governments will only fund, fund research that's get more or less guaranteed to produce results. And if you think of the discovery of DNA, when James Watson and Francis Crick were built, trying to build their model of DNA, they were both PhD students who were meant to be doing something completely different. And if that, if they were behaving like that nowadays, their supervisor would uh, just forbid all the experiments they were carrying out because they'd only have three years uh, from beginning to end to get their PhD done. And they wouldn't have had time to do all this other, other research. And presumably the structure of DNA would have, well, Rosalind Franklin would have worked it out for a start. Um, but it's a very good example of how if you if you focus down too narrowly and you steer people in advance, you're never going to find out um, anything by accident, by chance. You're never going to go in a different direction. It's very counterproductive government policy. A lot of people say we should do that differently. You should just literally take a bucket of money, throw it at basic research, don't really have a lot of expectations at the outset. And I think we've done this before, right? But the problem always is it ends up, it ends up as a Soviet bureaucracy. All these layers of management, and there's a few researchers, and most of them, they, they kind of give up um, at some point. Some are just naturally curious. I'm not saying there's nothing that will come out of it. But you see the structure of 5,000 people, and you feel from the outside. Obviously, it's different from the inside. There's only like 50 people who actually work on something useful. And that's, that's from when we look at this from a, from a company perspective, that seems really odd, right? We, we feel like, oh, we're wasting most of our money, which is like venture capital. You, you, you waste 90, 95% of your capital, but you only have one or two startups that make it, and that's good enough to pay it back. That's how outsized the returns are. And maybe a lot of people argue that on one hand, that the, the, the state or the, the, the public should adopt more of a venture capital model that we, we, we just basically just spray a lot of money and then pray for the best. And hopefully that's enough. We don't have any attachments to it. Basically just give people mm -hmm. equity and, and, and hope for the best. Do you think that would be a better approach? Uh, might be. In, in the part, past, that was in a way what was happening because most, not all, but most of the people who made what we now call the great scientific discoveries, most of them were independently wealthy. So they didn't have to, to worry too much. They, they could... Uh, they could afford to pursue their own interests and spend as much time as they wanted to in doing that. So, so I don't think there's any real evidence that this very, very directed and controlled scientific research is producing as good results. So yes, just throw all your money at it and see what happens might well be a good idea. But I, th I think it's very unlikely that any government would agree to do that. They'd be accused by the taxpayers of being incredibly irresponsible. So it's very unlikely. Yeah, and you only know afterwards what worked, right? So for the longest time, say for five or 10 years, I was involved with a, with a vehicle that is a bit like a public VC in Germany. And they kind of had these big ideas. And then every year they cut down on it quite a bit because exactly the public, that's what's going on there. And they never made any, they never had any exit. I think they were like two, 300 million in. So it was a considerable amount of money. And they were really stressing out um, and they were cutting funding to most of the existing investments. And then, you know what? Five years later, they made a $3 billion exit and everyone's happy. But for the longest time, it looked like a complete failure. So you, you, this time horizon is a real problem, right? You have to wait at least 10 years. 
and for that's a long time for being in the public limelight. And you know, most administrations run four years, so it's a really short time. Doing a ten-year investment is ridiculous. I mean, that that doesn't doesn't sound very natural. But the, uh, COVID's another example of how when there is a specific problem to solve and you put resources into it, it gets solved quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, but, but perhaps that's because medical research is rather different from open-ended scientific research. Uh, the medical researchers were looking for a very specific vaccine, which is rather different from sitting back and, for example, trying to work out how you could make relativity and quantum mechanics compatible because there is a great rift down the middle of physics um, which has not been resolved and I don't know if anybody's working on that problem but that seems to me a great difficulty in, in physics and rather like um, Einstein and relativity in 1905 it seems to me quite possible that the whole foundation of physics could just topple I have the same impression, but when I when I talk to people who know something or know a lot about that subject, they've all kind of given up on anything that moves beyond light speed, for instance. So mm. it's just they 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 kind of accept that by now, even in thousands of years, we can't overcome this. Which is for me it seems a bit like, you know, the Wright brothers. They they knew it could be done, but it it wasn't. They looked at I don't know ten thousand years of history of. of where it couldn't be done, and then suddenly it worked, right? So I feel like we 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 are in the same paradigm there of obviously you know, um, quantum physics, but it's I'm, very I'm hopeful still. I'm still very hopeful. Let's put it this way, but it's unrealistic. But I don't have any reason to be hopeful besides being hopeful. Uh, I think that's one okay. of those those things I learned. You you got to create this hopefulness and this optimism first. Otherwise, you don't get anywhere. I mean, you might get you know you to to. You see the the world through too much of a pink light, and that might be a problem on its own. But if you don't have that, if you just stay inside your comfort zone, then then you know the self fulfilling prophecy will never get going, and we will never get anywhere. Yeah, but um, that that sort of attitude is promoted by by the current regime because if you produce results that completely contradict every everything else, you're very unlikely to get funding for it. But that's what somebody's got to do in order to solve this basic problem of the disparity between relativity and quantum physics, uh, quantum mechanics. Yeah, that's why we need our billionaires. Hopefully they find that niche and invest into it. Um, but there's so many, there. so many scientists have got so much invested in maintaining. I mean, if you've been doing, for example, quantum mechanics for, for your whole life and you've, you've predicted new particles and you've found new particles based on quantum mechanics, you're going to be very, very reluctant to support any research proposal that suggests turning, turning that completely in a different direction. I mean, you're going to be opposed yeah. to it. So it's very yeah. difficult to break into that and change it. Yeah, we definitely need this permissionless environment. Like we, we I obviously want that for for entrepreneurs in, in most parts of the economy, but we also definitely need that in science. And it, mm -hmm. it's always a problem with the incumbent. I want to I want to steer our conversation a little bit more to Isaac Newton, and I know mm -hmm. you found some really interesting stuff about Isaac Newton. And I think your book is primarily about his later years in life when he worked at the London Mint. Why did you select that time frame? Why why did I choose it? Was that the question? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Why, yeah, did, you why did I choose that um, time frame? Well, um, because 
Isaac Newton has been mythologized as the man who supposedly sat underneath an apple tree in his country garden. And then at Cambridge, he's represented as a reclusive scholar who divorced himself from the world and discovered the great theory of gravity. But although biographers have written about the last 30 years of his life, nobody else except me has ever focused specifically on what he was doing then. He, he lived in London for 31 years, which is a very long time. He was an extremely influential man. He was uh, the, for much of that time, he was master of the Royal Mint, which is a position roughly equivalent to being the governor of the Bank of England nowadays. And I just wanted to present an interpretation of Newton that differed from the conventional one. It's not that I found out lots of new facts about him. Most, most of the research had already been done. But a lot of physicists, when they write biographies of Newton, have their own lives invested in presenting him as a supreme scientist. Their whole scientific careers have been in following science, and so they and they set up Isaac Newton as a great hero on a pedestal. It's also almost as though they worship him. So they've got an enormous amount investing, invested in presenting him as being a very virtuous and very heroic sort of character. I don't have that sort of investment, that sort of personal investment in preserving Isaac Newton's reputation. And so I just wanted to represent him as... I see him in the last 30 years of his life when he was very influential. He was very rich. He seems to have behaved very, very badly towards some people. And I thought that that would be a more realistic portrayal of him rather than the alchemist who never spoke to anybody and uh, was very reclusive. It's quite clear that whatever, however he behaved in Cambridge, he was very different when he went down to London. And he, he wanted to go to London. That last part of his career is quite often presented as a great scientific mind who, out of the goodness of his heart, was giving the benefit of his brain to, the, to running the economy and was seen as being a pretty petty sort of task. But it wasn't like that at all. He was trying for two or three years to get out of Cambridge. He couldn't wait to get down to London. When the job was offered to him, he, he took the next stagecoach down and, and stayed there for the next 30 years. He wanted to do it. When, when I looked at Isaac Newton, one thing that I realized is that he has a very tormented childhood. His, his mother kind of rejected him. She went on to start a new family. He grew up with his grandparents. Eventually, she came back. And he seemed to be definitely a child that was in limbo and probably felt that. Um, I, we only have Isaac, well, basically, we have Isaac Newton's interpretation of his childhood. I think a lot of people present their particular childhood as being very tough. What happened was that his father died before he was born. And then when he was three years old, his mother remarried and they went to live um, somewhere else. And they did. They left Isaac Newton with his grandmother. A lot of children especially then, were brought up with grandparents. Um, he, Isaac Newton presented himself as being a, a tortured child, and it's quite easy to, to make a sort of Freudian interpretation. He left notebooks uh, that he made when he was in Cambridge about how he hated his stepfather and he wanted to burn down the house that he lived in and all the, the other children and his mother with them. 
But uh, certainly the period that I've looked at, there's plenty of evidence that he was very close to his family. His, uh, his step-niece lived with him for many, many years in London and looked after him. He went to see, he was with his mother when she died. He gave uh, large amounts of money to all the members of his family and he stayed with them and he wrote to them and he supported them and he went back to, to Woolsthorpe at regular periods. So I'm not sure that he had such a terrible childhood as you're, as you're making out. I mean, he, I imagine he was um, upset at being separated from his mother, but that's a bit different from having um, a terrible childhood. This draft definitely a trait to rewrite our history and uh you know way more about the, the actual facts. What I was trying to, to do, to bring into the conversation is, do, do we need that rejection? Do we need this, this, this rupture in our life, especially early in our childhood? Um, and we mm. see this from a lot of successful people that they had somewhat convoluted childhoods. Um, there was all, maybe they made up these problems later on. So this could be another theory. But when we, when we look at, problems we have in today's society, it seems to be we err on the side of coddling our child, children too much. We, we, we worry about them all the time. We see them as, as, as precious investments that we, we like, a, like a base that we can't, we shouldn't take outside. It should be in a museum and should be perfect, but it shouldn't, definitely should not interact with reality, should definitely not interact with danger. But for a lot of people who are very successful, it seems they have, at least retroactively, they had a tough childhood, so to speak. There was something that w that made them realize you got to survive on your own, and you you got to have that drive, or you're in trouble. Is that something you you've seen before, or that's just some people are like that, and some people have just a happy childhood, and they still turn out to be genius. I um, I think one thing that's difficult to assess is what's going to happen in the future. You're, I think you're absolutely right that the modern attitude is to protect children, um, uh, over-protect children. And, and I saw that a lot um, in my role as a university teacher because a lot, a lot of the students that I was seeing had absolutely no experience whatsoever of looking after themselves. A lot of them had never even taken a bus or a train to school. They'd always been driven and they... Um, they found it very, very difficult suddenly being launched into an independent life. And a lot of them, as a consequence, had very difficult experiences when they were at university. And of course, those people, that generation, has not yet lived through an age where we will know whether that particular, what the results of that particular experience of childhood were. Um, I think everybody, it's easy, most people, can create a difficult childhood for themselves if they want to. I, I certainly could, whereas uh, looking from the outside, I had a perfectly comfortable, normal childhood. But I, I think like, certainly when I was a teenager, I could present myself as being very hard done by. So I, don't, I, I think it's all sort of part of the romantic myth. On the other hand, you think of someone like Robert Maxwell, for example, who certainly did have a very hard childhood. He was wandering across Europe by himself when he was about when he was a teenager um, and he turned into an extremely extremely successful man uh, but he was an extremely unpleasant one as well so perhaps that's part of what goes with it I don't know um, but it's very tempting to take a few extreme cases like that um, and generalize from them I think you'd have to yeah. do a much much more carefully controlled experiment 
environment, which is why I said it's important to wait to see what this helicopter over helicopter generation turns into. They'll probably end up being as successful as everybody else. It's, it seems to be we don't really have a conscious moment where we, we trace back our drive that, that drove us to a certain excellence at that moment, right? So the excellence obviously defined against our contemporaries very often. We don't compare ourselves to someone 500 years ago or 500 years in the future because we can't, right? So we compare ourselves in excellence and all these things against contemporaries. And there seems to be something, and I, I don't know if it's more nature or it's nurture or it's some, some accident, what plays that role that certain people will go out of their comfort zone, risk a lot, and usually this risk, I mean, that's really dumb risk, like you can, you can drive 100 miles through a crowded city and you kill yourself and others, that's really dumb risk, but say a calculated risk that seems to have more, way more on the upside than it has on the downside, and then make the world a better place because in these risky things, like a risky experiment or a risky new opinion that you put out there or a book that you write, you make the world a better place because it helps everyone to, to, they don't have to take that risk, but they get the same outcome that you found, right? So it makes everyone better off. It's kind of like a big investment. That's also a big risk. And I always found it really interesting to see what, what gave us this initial drive to, to get there. Um, I, I, I don't have a lot. I have a lot of ideas and theories. None of them really explain it. Well, um, the UK has got two national heroes. One's Isaac Newton and the other is William Shakespeare. And William Shakespeare took, took a lot of risks in his life. He left Stratford and he went to London where it was very risky. And he set himself up in business as a playwright, which was a very, very difficult way of earning your living. And he was extremely successful at it, as you know. And as far as I'm aware, he had uh, quite an ordinary childhood. I mean, his, fa his father was the mayor of Stratford. He made gloves. So it was, as far as I'm aware, it was quite a normal sort of reasonable childhood. And, you know, he took the risks and he was successful. So he would be a good counterexample uh, yes. to your proposition. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not just the childhood. I, the, you're right. But, but maybe it's events in our childhood. We don't even remember, you know, some, there was this theory for a while with, with like post-traumatic um, issues that we have from, from things that happened when we were a year or two year old. Um, so we don't remember them consciously, but they kind of haunt us the rest of our life. Yeah, well, you can, you can suppose that. That's a very easy to, thing to suppose that perhaps, yes, yeah, that you, you might have had a traumatic event that you don't remember, but that's easy to say. You, I mean, you, ca you can't prove whether that's true or not. I mean, right. <laughs> yes, I mean you, can, you can argue not, anything on that basis. That's not so helpful. Mm. <laughs> One thing about Newton that, that I had no idea about, I just learned about that with your help, is he was really worried and opposed to the standard theory at the time of Holy Trinity, right? That's how the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, how they interact with each other. There was a lot of debate in the early days of Christianity about that. And I think there's still a lot of Christian um, that have slightly different ideas how this actually works. The role of those three is some it's not very logical, let's put it this way, what the, the actual creed came up with, but it actually became part of the Catholic uh, Church. And it's, I think it's kind of forgotten this discussion. But what was uh, Newton's problem with it? So uh, Newton was a great peruser of ancient documents. And he came, and he came to the conclusion that something, it's, it was called a heresy, it's the Arian heresy, uh, named after the person who proposed it, uh, was a very 
uh, early idea. And it's basically, as you said, there's not God the Father, God the Son, and God uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, but specifically that Jesus is not a holy person, that Jesus was an ordinary person. He, he is not divine. And um, that belief has led on to form the Unitarian Church, but that didn't exist in, in Isaac Newton's time. And then if, uh, if you wanted to be a fellow of an Oxford or Cambridge college, you had to be a member of the Church of England. You couldn't be Catholic, you couldn't be Jewish, you couldn't be a Quaker, you had to subscribe to the Church of England. And there's this a creed called the 39 Articles. And one of the items in that is to say, to believe in the Holy Trinity. And Isaac Newton refused to do that. He somehow managed to get a special dispensation from the king. So he was allowed to be a fellow at Trinity, even though very, very unusually, he hadn't made that declaration. Uh, when he he stopped being the Lucasian professor. He ensured that the next Lucasian professor was a man called William Whiston, um, who was his protege and who was a great admirer of Newton's mathematics. Uh, William Whiston rather foolishly um, advocated Arianism, but he also proselytized and he tried to persuade other people to adopt it as well. And after a few years, he was banished from Cambridge and he had to go down to London and try and earn his living as a lecturer. Newton was far more canny about it and he kept very, very, very quiet about this belief because uh, he would have uh, run into enormous problems at Cambridge and elsewhere if he'd been very open about the fact that he was an Arian. It, it strikes me, looking back, and there's probably way more examples, but it, it strikes me as as almost incredible that these these unbe and unbelievable that these these really small differences in early Christianity created so much division, so much debate at least, um, and it took well, so long to resolve that. Well, you um, you say it's a small difference, but yeah. if you're Christian, uh, the, it's an enormous difference. I mean, it's far more of a difference than, say, the difference between Catholicism and Anglicanism um, yeah. or Protestantism. I mean, it's a huge difference uh, yeah. whether or not you believe that Jesus is divine. I mean, it's like the difference between Christianity and Judaism, basically. Yes, but but you have the same testament, right? You so you have you, you you typically accept the same canon. So you 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 look at the same New Testament, and yes, you can interpret it differently, and especially the yes. Holy Trinity, because it's not so well defined in the text itself. It opens itself up to a lot of different yes. interpretations. It's not yeah. nobody really literally writes enough about it. Um, so then there's 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 lots of other traditions of Christianity that we have today that are not very well formed in the in the New Testament. They don't they don't happen there at all, which is kind of which is really strange to me. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me personally because I don't have a religion. But if you are a religious person, those sort of questions are absolutely crucial. I mean, they're the sort of questions that people went to the stake for. Um, and, you know, they don't now, but our, our society has changed. And I don't think, I don't think it, it, they, these questions are unimportant. I mean, if people attach such great importance to them, then they are important by definition and just because people did in the past and don't now do, doesn't mean that they're trivial yeah when we when we look at the influence that religion has on this technological progress what would your what is your discovery or your gut feeling and then that would be 
part number one. And part number two is where do you see the most exciting areas of technological progress right now? Not necessarily in, in, in what kind of technology, but in what localities, what countries, or what is the determining factors where you see those might be the most, I don't want to say progressive, but what are the, the most the most successful, most likely candidates for coming up with great discoveries? Um, um, I don't know a huge amount about this field, but it seems to me the most exciting potential is lies in looking at the natural world and emulating um, life forms or life processes uh, and adapting them technologically rather than repeatedly trying to come up with new technological advantages. Uh, advances. Can I tell you again about the slime molds? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, okay. I love that. So, okay. So uh, as, as just one, one example that, of something that I do know quite a lot about, uh, there's some strange organisms called slime molds and they're not animals, and they're not plants, and they're not fungi. They live in a separate kingdom called Protista. And there's lots of different kinds, but there's one kind in particular that apparently they seem to behave intelligently. So if you take a little blob of this slime mold, they're minute, minute, tiny organisms, and you, you, put, you put some in the center of a maze, and then you put some food outside the maze, the slime mold can crawl through the maze systematically and arrive at the food. It's as though the slime mold had a memory and as though the slime mold were making decisions intelligently. And there was a key experiment was carried out in Tokyo uh, where a group of Japanese researchers got a map of Tokyo and the surrounding area, and they put some slime mold over the place where Tokyo was placed, and then they put little bits of oak flake. Um, apparently, slime molds love oak flake. They put oak flakes on all the major cities around Tokyo, and then they watched what happened over the next 24 hours. And this, all the tiny, tiny organisms amalgamated together into one giant cell, and they sent out little tendrils, little filaments towards these pieces of food. And they started off by sending them uniformly. But very soon, they developed some sort of way of finding out which were productive or useful paths to take and which were unproductive. And after the 26 hours of the experiment were up, they established a network of filaments that very closely resembled the rail, existing railway network uh, that had been designed by human engineers to take goods efficiently from Tokyo to the surrounding cities. And very many similar sorts of experiments have been carried out. There have been slime molds have uh, done maps of the American highways. They've done similar experiments in Britain. And the latest research that I heard about was that the decision-making process that they use, which is not a logical, um, a binary decision like digital computers use, it's a different form of decision-making, that computer programmers have absorbed that mode of decision-making into algorithms that are investigating the cosmic dark web and are doing useful things like uh, maximizing network transport systems um, and taking advantage of this different way of thinking. So I think when you look at the natural world, how these slime molds operate, it makes you think, well, what does it mean to think? And so 
I, I know that there are many other examples where people have looked at the natural world and um, it's led them to think differently about communication and our, our own interactions with the natural world. There seems to be a lot of magic left right in nature, a lot of stuff we can't explain. And uh, yes. this, this is one of those, those, those crazy examples. I love this story. And it's, it's, it's a, some neural network that it's in a decision-making algorithm and something we, we would describe as very primitive, probably it is. From, our, well, that, from, from one perspective, from another, it is the opposite, right? It's, it's, it's super advanced. Well, they, another thing that they've done is they've, they've very closely studied the uh, passage of fluid in these little tendrils and see they've worked out how it is that the tendrils are controlled and it's a sort of system of fluctuating pressures. And now the next step is that they hope that they're going to uh, somehow be able to absorb the same procedure in soft robots that operate under underwater. So it's yeah. just a different way of thinking about the problem. And if you think about it, there's been millions and millions and millions of years of evolution. And the all the natural organisms have come up with some very ingenious solutions to difficult questions. And I think human beings could take advantage of that and learn from it by looking at the natural world. And I know there's a lot of other examples. I'm just not very familiar with what they are. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Have you ever read the book Intelligent Design? Um, a couple this, that, is, that came after that, but that was one of the early ones. That I haven't read that one. Is, that is an intelligent creator, not necessarily God, can be God, but something that kind of instituted that algorithm because it's such there's such a beauty in it, there's such a poetic beauty, there's such an efficiency. It's it's almost like there is a super intelligent, when you read code, like if you're a coder like me, if you, if you read computer code, you can see not just if it works, but you can see the efficiency and you can also see a certain style, you can see a beauty in it. And a lot of people assume, well, that's obviously very subjective. There's, there's nothing you can actually put in, a, in an objective criteria right now, but, but there's other computing issues. Um, but that's how a lot of these solutions, when you first see them, and it might be just because we we are not really enlightened enough, we feel that is this this beauty in, in these solutions, and it's it seems so. How do I say that? It seems so not just computational. Um, the the statistics don't really suggest that this is all just random. It just doesn't look random to us. Now this is very subjective, right? But when I read this book, I'm like, whoa, this is just such a different approach to how evolution was assisted. Evolution still exists, but how evolution was assisted by something or someone. Okay, so um, there's some very basic questions I would ask any intelligent designer. Uh, why is it that you, decide, you designed human eyes in the way that you have, that they're almost bound to fail, often from birth? Uh, and why is it that you designed human backs? like you have so many people suffer from acute back pains. Um, I, I think those are two very simple questions which make me think that the, the, if there is some sort of supreme designer, uh, it isn't, isn't very intelligent, or at least, at least not very compassionate. Yeah, well, you can say that <clears throat> about God and suffering. Excuse me. <coughs> there seems to be a well, yes. amount of suffering. And if we have a benevolent God, how can he allow so much suffering? That seems counterproductive, but maybe it isn't, right? Maybe maybe, maybe that's what makes us a better human. But yeah, well, maybe that's I, just I, the I, tale we tell us. 
Um, I, I don't want to get into a theological argument with it, but that problem <laughs> of evil and suffering for me is one of the strongest reasons why I can't possibly believe in a God Christian or any other sort of God, because um, it was a big problem. Um, Leibniz um, wrote a lot about this problem. Um, it, it, it's just unbelievable to me that um, people can jump through so many hoops trying to explain away why suffering makes us better people. I don't think there's any evidence that suffering makes makes you a better person. I think it makes you a nastier person. And I can't believe that a merciful God uh, lets such suffering happen. Yeah, there's, there's, I think, one book in the, in the Bible that just talks about that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> where someone makes exactly that claim and basically talks to God and talk, God actually talks back and uh, indirectly. And that's, a, that's quite a debate. And I think the Talmud is full of these things, right, where, where you basically take something that is defined and you just, you go through a long logical process, you come out on the other side, and it's almost the opposite of what the initial argument was. I think that's mm -hmm. something to it. Maybe that's, that's all we need to, in order to become a better person. I wanted to go into two more things that I found really fascinating that I learned about you. One is you are president of the Antiquarian Horological Society. So I had to look that up. <laughs> I have never heard those words before. And I realized it's about timekeeping, right? So it's the, the, the science of how time was kept over, over the centuries. Um, what did you learn from that endeavor? Oh, uh, well, I was absolutely delighted and very, very surprised when I was invited to be become president. And I am very interested in the concept of time. Um, I'm not particularly interested in clocks, which is the sort of mechanical aspect of, of horology, although my PhD uh, was on magnetism in the 18th century. And I spent a lot of that learning about magnetic compasses and the details of those. And that's quite related to the internal mechanisms of clocks. Uh, so what, what's happened since I've become the president is I've been to a lot of meetings and heard a lot of interesting talks. I've also met a large group of people whom I would never have encountered otherwise, who are so enthusiastic about the watches and the clocks that they that they studied and are so knowledgeable that I find that quite inspiring. And there's a regular quarterly journal that comes out, which has um, wonderful illustrations in. And one of the things that I've been doing for the last year or two is I contribute a short article about a thousand words um, looking at a different picture every time and talking about how time is incorporated within the picture. Because it's, I find it very interesting, the idea that if you've got a flat two-dimensional piece of paper which is, exists in space, how is it that you can show the concept of passing time on a, on a two-dimensional surface. So one of the most famous uh, pictures that addresses that problem is Dice's picture of uh, Pegwell Bay, um, which um, sh show, it shows a small cove with very steep cliffs around it. And uh, it's a Victorian picture. And his family is on the beach gathering fossils. Well, fossils are already about the ancient world. Uh, the cliffs show all the geological strata. This was just about the time that Darwin and Charles Lyell were speculating about the age of the Earth, that it might be longer than 6,000 years. And there's a very specific date on the picture uh, in 
1858. I can't remember the day, but it's in 1858. Actually, he painted that picture the year before. And the reason he dated it 1858 was because 1858, there was a big comet called Donati's Comet. And so he he repainted the picture as though it were on the day of Donati's Comet. And he showed Donati's Comet uh, sailing down across the sky. And that particular cove, Pegwell's Bay, was where apparently St. Augustine landed and converted Britain to Christianity. So there's an equation between Donati's Comet in the sky and the star that was seen over the stable in Bethlehem when Christ was born. And there's all sorts of other um, implications of time in it. So every, every three months I've looked at a different picture and I've told stories like that about how they represent time. And I found that something very interesting to do. It's, I think, even when we learn Einstein's theories and the, the, the relativ- relativity of time, it's something that's hard for us. I know physicists have an easy time doing this, but I think for, for anyone who's not in that field of study, seeing how, how time is not constant is a really weird concept, right? It's, it's something mm. that, that took me forever to wrap my mind around. And I, I still have to kind of go into the sphere to like, like, learn learn it all over again and like prepare myself for it it's it's something we are so wedded to that there is this constant stream of time it's not reversible and it, it, it's the same everywhere where we go in the universe irrespective of our speed um, is there something where, where you feel we, we we haven't really gotten anywhere with, with with modifying time, right? So time is still very constant to us. We have observations and we know that Einstein's theories are all correct. But do you think that is something coming for us where, where we are becoming better at modifying time, the, the, the time stream? Is there, is there people, in, and I know it's science fiction right now, do you feel there's something coming in that direction? There's some actual research being done that we are able to, to play with time as a, as a constant and, 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 and change it the way we want? But I think there's a big difference between time as a scientific quantitative concept that's marked out by clocks and on the one hand, and then there's the other hand, experiential time, how we personally feel the passing of time. And I think, I mean, they're obviously related, but but they're they're also very different. And I think our experiential relationship with time is something that, I find extremely interesting. And like like we were talking earlier um, about before before clocks were invented, people lived by the seasons, um, and um, they they also lived by sunlight. So they didn't divide the day into equal blocks of time. They they divided the day into sunlight and and darkness, which is a very very different way of experiencing the world. I don't, I'm I'm I don't... amazed when I when I go to Ethiopia, their their day starts at six a.m. at sunrise, relatively stable in Ethiopia, and uh, so they tell time differently in terms of it's still twenty four hours, obviously, but it is so one a.m. would be seven a.m. and it's mm. really confusing if you try to to uh, to meet with someone in Ethiopia, you you will have trouble figuring out what time are you actually using. It's one of those few mm. countries that I came across, it has a very different um, concept of time. Uh, There's also different ways of setting up the calendar. So until 
I think it was until the 1940s, Russia was about 12 or 15 days behind us in the calendar. Yeah. And we, cha we changed our calendar in 1750 something something or other. So that, that's another aspect of it that I find quite interesting. I once read a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, um, that here, uh, you, if you want to catch a bus, you look up the timetable and you go to the bus stop and when the bus comes, you get on it because it always comes at a particular time. And then in some countries, the idea is that you go to the bus stop and when there's enough people at the bus stop, a bus comes and everybody gets on the bus. And it's a different way of thinking about time. It's, uh, it's a very um, environmental way of thinking about it as well, that you don't send an empty, empty bus down the road. Uh, and this, uh, this idea that money is time, that supposedly Benjamin Franklin coined, coined the phrase, that is a, that's only during the last few centuries that that's been true. It, it wasn't true in the past. So people had a very different relationship with time, I think. Yeah, I think we really feel this. If we if we leave the Western world, right? If we go somewhere else, and, and someone was telling me about Brazil, and the 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 idea is literally you 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 say you have a problem in your house and you call a plumber. It it might take a few weeks until that person actually shows up, and when they show up, they they want to they want to create a relationship with you. They want to be your friends. They want you to be invited for drinks. And then they might fix it, or they might not, and come back a couple of weeks later, and you're like, whoa, 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 shouldn't that be done? You know, when the appointment is, and whoa, whoa, but this is all not relevant. So this is we, the same we be with our technology. I think we are on some strange arc there, just, just a part, our little cult of technology has driven us there. One more thing I wanted to talk about, I know your time is very valuable. We, you have this really amazing um, new thing you're working on, and you look at caricatures about science, kind of like the comics of science. Yeah. And for me, this is just a, such a marvelous idea because it, it transports a certain human recognition about what science and how it felt in that moment to the people who actually were involved at that time. And it makes it so much more understandable for, for a bigger part of the population who doesn't have the time to read scientific books and who maybe doesn't have the prerequisite knowledge and, and, and language. Um, how how deep is that field of study? How many things could you look at? How many caricatures are there? Oh, there's hundreds and hundreds of caricatures. The, um, I mean, the great age of caricature in Britain was really the 18th and the 19th centuries. I think now when we look at cartoons of science, they're, they're quite often, they're either making a gentle joke or else uh, cartoon strips are used to teach science. But that certainly wasn't true in the 18th and 19th centuries. Caricatures and cartoons were used to attack science and question it and challenge it. And to, to look at a car caricature by someone like Gilray, for example, who's our most famous caricaturist, they're always very, very complicated. And although they would have seemed immediately very funny uh, to people at the time, they've got a lot of historical references in them. Uh, which are quite difficult for us now to tease out. So what what I'd really like to do is write a book um, where there's a caricature, and then on the opposite on the opposite page there's a text explaining all the different things that are going on in the caricature and the point that's being made. So what one of them, for example, which is particularly relevant now, is uh, we think of smallpox vaccination as being absolutely 
wonderful smallpox has been practically eradicated uh, from the world. But when smallpox vaccination was first introduced, people were very, very sceptical and with justification. It hadn't been tested properly. Um, it, there was a lot of secondary infection. Uh, the, the vaccine was derived from cows and people were very suspicious about that. And there's a marvellous caricature uh, by... Gilray of Dr. Jenner, who introduced smallpox vaccination, and it shows his patients lining up, and they've all got horns sprouting out of their heads, and they're all turning into cows, and there's various other aspects to it as well. But it's a very powerful demonstration of anti-scientific feeling, and also how a certain cautious scepticism about science can be justified. We, you know, in retrospect. Smallpox vaccination was an extremely, extremely good idea. But at the time, it wasn't nearly so safe and people were uncertain and there were a lot of quack remedies being suggested. So I think people are right to be cautious. But it seems to me that it would be such a fun way to learn about the history of science because you, you get yeah. to look at the caricature and you start to understand it and, and you laugh at it. It's an underrated art form, I feel, and we, we, we don't see enough of it. There is always this slight bend towards cynicism, which is probably not ideal, and to, to be to negativity. But I think it's such a, such a strong medium. It's, I mean, it explains itself so quickly. People don't, don't have enough of this, I feel. Uh, I think it does explain itself quickly, but there's, there's a very large number of references in these things. So it's a bit like now, if you, if you watch a satirical news program, they can be absolutely hilarious, but you really have to be up to date with all the news details in order to understand them properly. Otherwise, the jokes slide past you. And I think that's that's what's happened with these caricatures. Pe people don't know all the details anymore, but they're quite easy to explain and quite, I, I think very interesting. So I, I'd love to do a book about that. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited to read that one. And uh, thank you for doing this, Patricia. That was awesome. Really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the time to interview me. Are you? Is there going to be a sort of podcast or something? You're going to yes, send me a link? Yes, it will be a podcast and uh, it will be on YouTube as well. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. It's very nice to have met you. Patricia, thank you. Same here. Okay. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.